and we're going to jump right in um, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy. So let's stand together. Lauren is going to come, and she's going to read our text, 2 Timothy, and um, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your mother Eunice, and now I am, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Lord, help us today as we begin our time together in studying this incredible book. Lord, would we um, be humble to be taught by you? Lord, would you have freedom to um, do surgery in our hearts as we sit under the preaching of your word, Lord, as we reflect over it during times of home group or even our own devotions, as we as a church family talk through the implications, Lord, of what you are teaching us through this book. Uh, may it challenge us to be uh, the, the kind of courageous people you are calling us to be. And Lord, help us to see what that looks like in light of your gospel and in light of who you are as our great God and Savior. Allow me then, Lord, simply to be your messenger and to reflect your truth uh, clearly, powerfully, and purposefully, Lord, to the hearts of those who are here this morning. And Lord, we ask for strength and comfort and guidance from you, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I think you'll agree with me that we are living as Christians in fast-changing times. Um, over the past, might want to say, year or so, uh, we have witnessed videos where Christians have been targeted and um, there have been beheadings. And uh, we may not have actually watched the whole videos, but we've seen the pictures of them anticipating losing their lives, and we're asking ourselves the question, why is this happening? But it's still over there somewhat, and yet, uh, more recently, there was a school shooting where it seemed like the media did all they could to dance around the fact that the person was calling out Christians to target. And we're asking ourselves the question, okay, um, how come Christians are now being the focus of attention? This is not the norm. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what we are used to. And then subjects like abortion have come up, and we've seen the, the scandalous videos that are out there, again, that our society just does not really ultimately want to pay attention to. They want to say, these videos have been fabricated, even though it's been proved that they haven't, and they don't want to acknowledge the, the data that is revealed in those videos and the horrendous crimes that are taking place. And of course, as believers, we recognize that abortion is, is killing a child. And yet we're shaking our heads, just how, how can a society see such evil and yet not be turned 
against that evil, but actually want to find some way to say that it is good. And then, of course, the issues of same-sex marriage, which mocks the character of God and his clear teaching on the nature and the purpose of marriage. And These are just a number of the things that have come up recently, and, and it just seems, friends, like the attitudes towards Christians are changing. Even in the face of clear evidence, our society is turning against the things of God. We live in a culture that has moved from being God-fearing, at least in a sense of respecting the church and respecting Christ and respecting the gospel, to a society by, its vir- by virtue of its values and its choices is now God-hating. I don't wanna hear about your God. I don't want God to have any say in this place. Leave him out of it. And ultimately, it's saying, God, I hate you. So society will craft a God of their own making that is loving and accepting of its vile wickedness. It'll shape and fashion that God so that they can feel better about the sin that they are committing and call it good rather than the evil that it is. And so this is a God that calls evil good and calls good evil. And it's not so much that we're challenged by the fact that the God is, this, this God of this world is calling evil good. I think we're really shaken by the fact that it's calling good evil. And friends, we're, we're just living in changing times, and, and, and this, is, this is the reality of where we are. This didn't happen overnight, but it happened by a slow erosion over time so that the dikes and the buttresses that were built on biblical truth were overrun by a secular ideology. And we can't just stick our heads in the sand and hope that it's going to go away. This is the reality of the world that we are living in now. And if you are a believer and you are living and you are breathing, God has called you to live out your walk with him here and now in this context. So we gotta be careful that we're not dreaming about the good old days. Whatever those are, everyone has them, right? The good old days. But even in those good old days, there was wickedness. And that wickedness was, was, uh, was on display in different ways, and it was maybe behind closed doors, but it was still going on. Today, though, it's in your face, and it's rampant. And we cannot afford to be fearful, to be timid, to be ashamed, or even to be intimidated. This, friends, is a time for Christians to be courageous. This is a time where we find that we are rooted in the gospel. It's, it's a place that we have to come where we say, where did we actually come from as far as our faith is concerned? How did that happen? And listen, if you kind of walk through your Christianity saying, well, you know, I chose God, then you may be in trouble. But when you're walking in a society when you're recognizing, listen, there was nothing in me that was worth anything and God in his providence came and snatched me to himself. I am his child because of his work on my life and in my life. Then that fuels me to, to be courageous now. We must also be willing to stand firm and tall for the glory of God. So a question for you. Are you a courageous Christian? 
Are you brave with your Christian faith and testimony? Here's a couple of diagnostic questions maybe to help you tease out the answer to that question. When you're alone as a Christian, in other words, you're the only one there at work, with your family, at a social gathering, with these unbelievers, and a question comes up that challenges or distorts what Christians believe or teach, what do you say? Do you say anything? Do you speak up? Do you contradict what is being said? You find yourself wrestling inside with whether or not to respond to those statements. Are you willing to say, hey listen, I'm a Christian and, and I don't believe what you're saying. Or I'm a Christian and I do believe that. Or I'm a Christian and I, I realize that you might think that Christians believe that, but they don't. But let me show you what Christians actually do believe. I'm not saying you have to be contentious, but you can be clear. And you can stand for what is truly what the scriptures are all about. You know, Christians are just a bunch of haters. Their God is just a, a God who just wants you to have a bad day all the time. Really? Let me, let me draw you in and, and show you what Christianity is really all about because your perspective is completely distorted. Are we willing to, to say that in that kind of a context? Let's change the scenario. And I think, I think this is even more difficult. Imagine that you're, you're talking um, or you're in a situation where you are surrounded by those who identify themselves as Christians, but they don't actually believe what the Bible says. Maybe they're talking about the, the sexual ethics that have been kind of part of the, the cultural discussion in more recent months. Adultery and divorce and homosexuality and, and premarital sex and things like that. And, and, and they're kind of as a group, kind of coming to a consensus where they're saying, you know, we, we just need to, we need to move with the times. And you're like, what in the world am I hearing from these people who profess to be believers, who don't believe what the Bible actually says? We're not to move with the times, we're to stand on the truth. Are you one who's willing to speak up and say, no, I I don't think that we need to simply keep up with the times. We need to believe what the Bible says. And friends, what I'm sharing with you is not easy. I know some of you probably right now are feeling, man, you know, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm usually one who's quiet. I'm usually, I'll just get out here and endure this for a while. I get that because I'm just like you. I don't like to be uh, in, the, in the midst of con- conflict and confrontation. That's not where I want to be, but there comes a point in time where you have to speak up, and you have to correct, and you have to stand for what God's word says. It's hard to stand out in a crowd as a Christian and be in the limelight for something that scripture teaches, but that isn't popular in contemporary culture. It's like, oh no, not that Christian again. Here they go, moaning about their God again. You don't want to be that person. But God calls us to be that person in a way that glorifies him. To be courageous in a society that is turned away from God. So in fact, I think that all of us in this room would be struggling spiritually, wanting to shrink back in these contexts, feeling inadequate, 
rationalizing that silence may be the best Christian response for the moment. And friends, we need counsel, we need help in this area of our lives. We may have our doctrine down. We may know lots of Bible verses and Bible stories. We may have grown up in the context of the church, but when it comes to being brave for Christ, we find that we so often fail miserably. Deep down, we know that we should have said something. And in the quietness of our hearts, we're struggling with guilt and shame because we feel like we failed our Savior. And I think if I just went around the whole room here today, everyone would say, yeah, I've, I've been there. Yeah, I've done that. And I hate it. And yet, I struggle with it. And you would be in good company. But we must also remember that even when we shrink back, God's commitment to us doesn't change. When you are fearful about speaking up for him, he's not that but saying, well, you're this close to losing your salvation. No, he understands. But the fact that he understands doesn't mean we are excused for not growing in this area and determining how God wants us to be courageous in our Christianity for his glory. So the book of 2 Timothy that we are looking at now for the next 10 to 12 weeks is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his beloved apprentice. It's his second letter to Timothy, as you noted by the title, It's a book about being courageous. Courageous for the Lord and for his gospel. It's a book about not being ashamed. It's a a letter about continuing to carry the torch. It's a call to us to not be spiritual wimps, but to be brave with the power of the gospel. Now if you want to turn to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, you can, but in that passage of scripture, what we find is we find uh, Paul's introduction to Timothy. Timothy grew up in a home where his father was an unbelieving Gentile. But his mother and his grandmother were believers. And they're the ones that brought him up in the ways of God, taught him the gospel, nurtured his faith. And when the Apostle Paul arrives at the town of Lystra, the community of believers recommend Timothy, commend Timothy to Paul as someone who is growing and maturing in his faith. And Paul snatches him up and takes him with him on his missionary journeys. And so Paul and Timothy have spent lots of time together. They have been through difficulty, they've been through trials, they've been through challenges, and they've spent many years of ministry interacting together. Timothy was Paul's go-to man, and he wasn't afraid to place him in the, the context of difficult situations. Let me kind of walk you through this a little bit. 
Some people say that Timothy was, was timid and shy. But remember, I would challenge that. Because remember, Paul sends Timothy to Corinth with a letter in hand. Anyone remember the content of the letter to the Corinthian church? It wasn't a happy letter, let's just put it that way. It was a letter that says, listen, stop all your division, stop your sin. And Timothy, you help not only having this read, but actually seeing that it is done. It doesn't take a timid, shy person to walk into Corinth with a letter like that and to see that it's carried out. Not only that, Timothy was a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was a bastion of paganism, and yet the church was growing there, and Timothy was called to lead that church. In fact, 1 Timothy is a letter written to Timothy to help him sort through some of the issues that were happening in that particular church. But it takes a strong, passionate, dedicated, committed man to lead a church like that and to serve as Paul's ambassador like that. So you might say, maybe Timothy did have a little bit of timidity. Well, even the strongest of Christian leaders may struggle with shyness and timidity to some degree, but that was not Timothy's constitution. He wasn't walking around kind of as this, this kind of afraid, kind of, you know, guy who was wondering what was going to happen next. That's, that's the appearance sometimes that we have of Timothy. Now, Timothy was a capable and accomplished Christian leader who stood the test of time. He stood against false teachers, against false doctrine. He counseled, he gave advice, he encouraged, but he also was the recipient of those things from the Apostle Paul. So as we think through the the big picture of 2 Timothy, we may ask ourselves this question, how is 2 Timothy different than 1 Timothy? Well, just note this. In 1 Timothy, what we have here basically is a a manual on the church. Paul's writing to Timothy to say, listen, this is how you do church. He talks about the establishing of elders and deacons and dealing with false teachers. And we're kind of given the melodic line of 1 Timothy in chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. Let me read it to you. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul specifically says, this is why I'm writing this to you. That's 1 Timothy. But when we come to 2 Timothy, it's a completely different letter. This is the last known letter that we have that Paul wrote before his death. I want to say this is Paul's last will and testament. He has an opportunity to write to Timothy, and he is pouring out his heart as a, as a pastor, as a mentor, as a guide, as an apostle to his apprentice, Timothy. This is a more personal letter. Yes, it's written to Timothy, but it is also written to the church. Look at the end of 2 Timothy, chapter four and verse 22. Now what we don't see in the English language is the nuance of the Greek. And what you have here at the end, it says, the Lord be with you 
That you there is singular. Or the Lord be with your spirit. That's singular. And then it says grace be with you and that you there is plural. When Paul writes his letters, in the particular, he's writing this letter to Timothy, but he understands in writing this letter to Timothy that this letter is also going to be read to the church. So as we sit back and as we listen to the instructions here given to Timothy, it's not just, oh, well, that's nice, you know, we'll hear about Paul says, you know, to Timothy. This is also written for our benefit. And there are principles and truths that we will grow um, we will, we will have for us to help us grow in our walk with God so that we can be courageous. But Paul is now in jail. Now your mind might go to the fact, oh yeah, Paul, remember he was in jail and he wrote a lot of letters from jail, um, but that was what was called house arrest, where he was simply in a place where he, was, he, he needed to be stationed, but he had the comforts of being in a home. He, people could come and go. He could write letters. He could receive letters. That was an earlier situation that Paul was in what we understand now is that Paul is in jail, in such a jail where he is in chains in Rome. And the kind of jail likely that this was, was a jail where you are dropped into this kind of room and the only light and the only space for air is this hole at the top and you are chained in there. That's the context where Paul is at right now. Here we have him, he says, in chains. Chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us that he's writing from the context of being in chains. We also find in this little letter, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 9, that, that he had already been put on trial as a criminal. So a trial had, been taken, had taken place. He's in jail. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says that he had been opposed by Alexander the coppersmith, and he had been deserted by everyone, it says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. This is, this is what Paul is going through. He's alone, he's a convicted criminal, he is in chains, and he is awaiting his sentence, which likely will be death. We find that in chapter four, verses six and seven. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul is anticipating his imminent death. So what's the melodic line? What's the theme of 2 Timothy? What is the, the theme of this last will and testament of Paul, the apostle to his son in the faith? And throughout this letter, two themes come up over and over and over again. We have on, on one hand, we have the gospel. A gospel which is to be protected and preached. I'm just gonna highlight some things that are said. Chapter one, verse six or seven, fan into flame the gift. The gift of preaching the gospel, the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in your ministry. Chapter 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words. Where do you find those sound words? Those are the sound words that Paul had taught Timothy. Those are the sound words that explain and express the gospel. Verse 14, guard the good deposit. Again, the gospel, the truth of God's word. Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Again, chapter 1, verse 8 and 16, do not be ashamed of what? Of the gospel and even of me. Paul says. 
So there's this theme of the gospel. On the other hand, there's this theme of suffering or enduring. Chapter one, verse eight, share in suffering. Chapter two, verse three, share in suffering. Chapter three, verse 12, all godly will be persecuted. Chapter four, verse five, endure suffering. But I would just draw your attention to what seems to be a summary of this book. Chapter two and verse three, Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Friends, it takes courage to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And God is calling us as individuals and as a church to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Whittle that down, it's a call for us to be courageous Christians in a context of ungodliness. So that brings us to our text this morning. How do you as a a faithful apostle, a mentor, begin a letter to a faithful friend so that you can encourage him to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel? I think the answer to that question is you take him to his roots and you build from there. And so what we have in our text this morning is this. Three foundations that will fuel our gospel endurance. Three beginning places that will nurture us and and move us to, to, to help us begin this idea of what it means to be courageous in this context that God has called us to live. You can summarize them. These are not the headings that go in your handout, but you can summarize it as the foundation as being friendship, faith, and giftedness. But I want to put it a little differently because I think it helps us grasp the, the, the specific statements that Paul is making here. So let's begin this morning as we look at our text at what I'm calling the intimacy of gospel relationships. The intimacy of gospel relationships. Here we have this relationship between Paul and Timothy. You know, in 1 Samuel we saw a beautiful relationship between David and Jonathan, right? Older Jonathan, younger David. Older Paul, younger Timothy. And yet it's a relationship that is knit together because of the gospel. So what do we, what do we learn about Paul? It says, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Well, he's an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out by Christ to proclaim the message of the gospel. But the apostles were also a unique, a unique group of men used by God to establish the foundation of the church. Now this might seem to be a rather formal statement for an intimate personal letter to Timothy. But remember, this wasn't just written to Timothy, it was written to the churches. So the churches needed to hear Paul say once again, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Of course, that takes us back to his conversion. According to the promise of 
the life that is in Christ Jesus, the life that flows out of the gospel. This is what I have been called to preach. This is what I have been called to spread good news about. But he's an apostle. But what do we learn about Timothy? He says, to Timothy, my beloved child. Friends, this is intimate language. This is language that communicates from a mentor to an apprentice, a heart of love, a heart of of joy, and we'll see that teased out as Paul continues. But Timothy was Paul's apprentice, his friend, his co-laborer. He is mentioned at the beginning of no less than six of Paul's letters to various churches. I mean, you could quite rightly say that this letter, or not this letter, but these six letters are written by Paul and Timothy, because that's how he introduces it. They're both working together, and he includes him. And Paul's affections toward Timothy, his trustworthy friend, is oozing from every verse of this letter. He remembers Timothy. He longs to see Timothy. He pours out his heart to Timothy, pleading with him to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. And at the end of this letter, twice Paul pleads with Timothy. Look at it, chapter four and verse nine, and chapter four and verse, um, I think it is 22. No, 21. Look at verse, verse nine. Do your best to come to me soon. And then again at verse 21, do your best to come to me before winter. Timothy, I long to see you. I miss you. I need to see you. Come. Now you might be thinking, here's Paul in prison, and Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Yeah, just drop everything at Ephesus and come to see me. Now friends, this this is a beautiful picture of gospel relationship going on here. This relationship was forged over time. And Paul is writing this letter in a way that Richard Baxter says that a preacher should preach. Richard Baxter says this, the preacher should preach from his heart as as a dying man to dying man. And Paul is writing this letter as a a dying man to dying men. Another dying man in particular, Timothy. So this is a personal and a passionate letter from Paul the master to Timothy the faithful apprentice and friends. This is an example and a picture of what God is calling us as his church to be like. Out of necessity for the gospel We should be about investing ourselves in the lives of others who are also pursuing Christ. God calls some of us to be like Paul, guiding, encouraging, teaching, and strengthening others for gospel ministry. And God calls us also to be Timothys, people willing to be taught and trained for gospel ministry, but the reality is that we will take on both roles, leading and guiding like Paul, and being led and guided like Timothy. That is why Paul 
is talking about. It's what he's saying in chapter two and verse two. He says, and when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. There's four steps in that progression. Paul to Timothy to other men and those other men to other men. They're all taking on this role. They're all taking on this responsibility as been receivers who are being equipped and those who are leaders who are equipping. And so when we're talking here about a gospel ministry, I'm talking about the kind of ministry, first of all, that takes place in the heart. We want everyone at Gateway Bible Church to be growing in their personal pursuit of holiness. That is gospel ministry. That is developing character. That is developing people to be more mature in Christ. But it's also a ministry that takes place in the home. As parents, you are called to nurture your children, to bring them up in the ways of God. It's the same thing. You're taking on the role of Paul, investing in Timothys. And as those Timothys grow up, what do you want them to do? to turn around when they have children, to invest in their Timothys and to take on the mantle of Paul. Let's not forget that the home is a place of ministry that God has called us all to in our families. But it's also a ministry through the organized church, and that means thinking through the development and growth of your ministry that will help the church be what God has called it to be. God has given each of us gifts, and it's the exercise of those gifts in the context of the church that allows that church to grow and to mature. So here Paul and Timothy are for us a picture of an intimate gospel relationship. And so Paul now encourages Timothy by by beginning his, his words and pleading with him to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel on the firm foundation of even this greeting. He begins with this greeting, and I'm sure as Timothy's reading this greeting, his eyes are filling up with tears because he knows the heart of his master, his mentor, his friend. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now friends, don't pass over this greeting too quickly. I know it's just part of the, it's part of the beginnings of, of many letters that are written in the Bible. But what we have here are three encouragements that both we and Timothy need. First of all, we need grace. Grace for those who are undeserving. And oftentimes when we think about grace, you can divide it into two different categories. There's common grace. And common grace is God's kindness to everyone, whether they're a believer or not. How many of you enjoyed the clouds that settled on our, on our land yesterday? You know, my son had a soccer game, and they're like, you know, it's going to be wet out there. And I'm thinking, oh, it's fleet week. You know, it's like, oh, look, there goes a blue angel, although I didn't see it. But it was thick, and it was refreshing, and there was a little drizzle. And in England, we call that a good day to play golf. But it was nice. But that's God's common grace. He gives, he gives water to South Carolina. It doesn't give it to California. But he gives California other things. 
He doesn't just stop over the Christian's home and pour out water and say, oh, this one's an unbeliever. No, can't, they can't have any water. You know, he doesn't do that. It's common grace. And a lot of people don't realize that a lot of what they are experiencing is the blessing of God, that they, they have no clue. But then there's what we call, I'll call it this way, I'll call it amazing grace. Amazing grace is God's special grace that draws men out of their sin and saves them from eternal wrath. That's why we sing John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. Here's one of the stanzas. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. That's a unique grace that God breathes out on his children. There's mercy, mercy for those who are helpless. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, I, just, God, I don't know what to do? I need your mercy. And we've been the recipients of mercy, and we're also called to be the agents of mercy as well. And then there's peace. And this is peace for those who are unsettled. God's peace, friends, is a treasured possession, but often misunderstood. God is not here promising earthly peace, peace in this world. This is a peace that comes from being reconciled to God, to be at peace with God rather than being alienated from God or an enemy of God. And so friends, these are foundational realities to what it means to be a courageous Christian. They're ongoing. They're intimate gospel relationships that we have established. Just look at your life and reflect on your life. Who was your Paul? Or who were your Pauls? Who are your Timothys? Are you cultivating those relationships? Have you neglected those relationships? Are you pursuing those relationships? Foundation, one of them, Paul reveals here, for our ability to endure hardship of this world for the sake of the gospel is the kind of relationships that we can have in this room as people of God knit together, growing together, encouraging one another together for his glory. The second foundation I'm calling this, the impact of gospel reflection. Every month, the first Sunday of the month, the end of our service, we purposely seek to remember the Lord's table, to remember what Jesus Christ did for us by hanging on the cross and paying for our sin and, and bearing the wrath of God. It is a time of reflection. It's a time that takes us back to the, the bare basics of what it means to be a child of God. Jesus died for us, and through that death, we have new life in him. And friends, God purposely put that in there so that we would be reminded of that basic reality. What Paul introduces next, however, is another important form of reflection. 
And celebrating the Lord's Supper, we reflect on what Christ has done, what Paul is focusing on here, is to reflect on how Christ has done it. I want to say, looking at the providential hand of God in your life in accomplishing your salvation. So let's think about Paul to begin with. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Now please get this. For Paul, following Christ was the natural, logical fulfillment of his ancestral roots. Jesus is the Messiah the Old Testament points to. He is living out the faith of his ancestors. He's living out the faith of his forefathers. And Paul was once a zealous Pharisee, rooting out Christians and persecuting them out without remorse. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he met God and became a changed man. He was radically saved and called by God to lead Christ's church. But for Paul, his Christianity was not something that was tacked on to his Judaism. His Christianity was the natural result of what his ancestors believed. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So now at the end, he reflects on his relationship with Timothy and he sees that in light of his legacy flowing out of Judaism and into Christ, that it is marked by three things. First of all, a clear conscience, a clear conscience. For Paul, having a clear conscience was vital in fighting the good fight. This is how he says it in his first letter to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 1, 18 and following. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck their faith, among whom are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is Paul saying there? Paul can say that the end of his life, having faced shipwreck and preaching in, in various places, confronted by opposition and beaten, and, and as well as celebrating God with God's flock, he says, my, my conscience is absolutely clear. Now, by no means is Paul saying that he was perfect. But the impression that we get from his writings is that when he sins, he is confronting himself with the realities of the gospel and he's trusting in the forgiveness that God grants so that he is now reconciled in his relationship once again and he's going through this process daily of maintaining a clear conscience. Friends, there's something to be said about having a clear conscience. But there's something to be said about knowing how you can have a clear conscience and making sure that you're processing through that so that your conscience truly can be clear. That passage I just read tells us that those who ignore God's truth make shipwreck of their faith. They violate their consciences. Paul's legacy was also marked by perpetual prayer for Timothy in particular. He says, I pray for Timothy constantly, night and day. Now don't get the picture of Paul just on his knees 
24 hour seven, you know, he's just there the whole time, all he's doing is praying for Timothy. No, you know, this is, this is an attitude of prayer. This is throughout the day as I'm thinking about the world that I'm, I'm living in, I'm reminded in particular of some special people or special needs, and I'm constantly going before God. It's an attitude of prayer. This is what intimate friends do for one another. They remember one another and pray for one another. But it's also marked then by thankfulness. And as Paul reflects on his heritage and the legacy of his gospel and that ministry that, that he had with Timothy, he is truly thankful. When was the last time you told your Paul or your Timothy that you are thankful for God's work in bringing the both of you together for gospel growth. When was the last time you humbled yourself and joyfully proclaimed your thankfulness to that person? As your mind reflects on those individuals, ask yourself, have I taken the time to communicate to them the depth of my appreciation for their impact on my life? Sometimes it's good just to write a quick note. You don't have to say much, but you can say thank you. And you can recognize the influence and impact that that person has had on your life. I came across this reflection from John Stott. John Stott was a pastor in England uh, not too long ago before he went home to be with the Lord. He says this, I thank God for the man who led me to Christ and for the extraordinary devotion with which he nurtured me. In the early years of my Christian life, he wrote to me every week for I think seven years. He also prayed for me every day and I believe still does. I can only begin to guess what I owe unto God for such a faithful friend and pastor. See, what, what, what kind of relationship do you have that is moving you in your growth toward Christ-likeness. That is asking you hard questions, that's challenging you in your walk with God, that's motivating you to take steps of faith or to not be fearful. God brings people into our lives to be a help and to be a resource. And here's Paul with his legacy. This is where he came from. And now we look at Timothy and, and his legacy. And Paul kind of picks up the, this, this idea of remembering. He says, I remember your tears. You can see the depth of Paul's affection for Timothy in these verses. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And we're not sure exactly about when Paul saw those tears specifically. It could be Acts 20. 38, where it seems like all the elders when Paul was leaving were, were weeping. It's kind of a, a, a mushy group of weeping men at that moment. Um, but there is there's something beautiful about that. There's a genuineness about those tears, but it seems there's something more recent. And it's very possible that Timothy and Paul had continued to interact together, but when Paul was taken this last time to prison, it seemed to be much more of a, of a wrenching kind of experience, and it's very likely that that's what Paul is referring to. This, this, this young man who, who's, whose tears stir up joy in Paul's heart. Not because of the tears, 
but because the tears communicated a depth of intimacy, a depth of relationship, a depth of, of being co-laborers together for the gospel. I don't like to say goodbye to those who've been part of our church. We've had to say goodbye to some people, and it's, it's not easy. We, we rest in the sovereignty of God and his purposes and his providence over their lives, and yet the wrenching of that can be hard at times. I think when Paul is remembering his tears, he's thinking to himself, it was worth it. God has been good. I am fulfilled to have a relationship with Timothy like this. And he's filled with joy. But that then leads him to reflect on Timothy some more and he says, it's not just I, I remember your tears, I also remember your faith. Look at verse five, I re, I'm reminded of your sincere, sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So as Timothy grew up in, in Lystra, he had a father who was an unbelieving Gentile, but it was the faith of his mother and his grandmother that was passed down to him that was the means of his conversion. Their faith was the real deal. It was the genuine article. It was also now, as Paul reflects, Timothy's faith. So Timothy might be young. He might be the apprentice. He might not be the kind of rugged, bold character that Paul was, but his faith was solid and sincere. And Paul believed that so much that he was willing to entrust to Timothy the responsibility to represent him in very difficult situations in churches. He was willing to entrust to Timothy the baton of the gospel, knowing that he would faithfully guard it, preach it, live it, teach it to God's people and to those who would reject it. He believed in Timothy, and he believed in Timothy's faith. Now take a moment to reflect on God's providence in bringing you to himself. Paul was confronted while he was persecuting the church. and He came to realize the gospel was the natural and logical outflow of his Judaism. Timothy was influenced and guided by his mother and his grandmother. I, Rod Phillips, came to Christ out of rebellion against my parents and the church, and God used the sport of soccer as a means of drawing me to a place where I was under a coach that at every practice shared the gospel. And through that, I was drawn into the family of God. My point here is this. We all have a different legacy. We have all come to be a part of the family of God in different ways. Because God changes people from the most radical circumstance and even in the place where it seems like everything is in place. I was part of a Christian home. We had Bible studies in our home, but while those Bible studies are going on, I'm upstairs with my friend mocking everything that's going on downstairs. And yet God took me 
and drew me to himself and just penetrated my heart with his gospel. That's what happened to me, and I'm sure if we went around this room, there'd be different stories of God's miraculous intervention in rebellious lives and drawing him to himself. And we might hear also of children who had grown up in Christian homes who was just like, I, I just always remember loving Jesus Christ because my parents faithfully shared the gospel week in and week out. So as you add your story, you add your legacy. And it's this legacy of God's providence at work in our lives that is the foundation that fuels us to endure. And this is the reflection that is necessary. Listen, how can I be a courageous Christian? One of the ways you do that is you go back and you say, where did God take me from? And if God can change a rebellious 16-year-old kid and stir him up so that at the age of 17, in his heart, and his mind, he's convinced God wants him to go into ministry, he can certainly do that with your children in similar ways. He can, he can spark that flame of gospel in that heart. And you and I can be courageous because if he can exercise his power then in the past, he can certainly exercise his power in the future. The power of the gospel doesn't just change its salvation, it continues on as we live our lives for his glory. And as we live our lives as the church in the context into which he's placed us. So will we be, be courageous Christians? We might stand a better chance when we consider how God's gospel has been in work in our lives and still is. See, that's the impact of gospel reflection. And finally, we move to what I'm calling the inspiration of gospel reaffirmation. I know it's a mouthful. But you'll understand why it, it's clear in just a minute. Kent Hughes says it well when he says, the soil of Timothy's life, watered by such love and faith, was ready to be planted with Paul's appeal. And this is the reason why Paul can say what he's about to say. Verse six, for this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I need to do a little bit of interpretive exegesis and clarification here. You will notice in verse seven it says, for God gave us a spirit not of fear. As I've studied through this, I've read a number of commentaries, listened to the arguments and stuff, and I'm, I'm convinced that Verse seven should, should not be translated, give us a spirit. In other words, speaking a, about a human spirit or an attitude that God has given us, but it should be the spirit. In other words, God has given us a spirit with a capital S. And you see, the Holy Spirit is not a spirit that produces fruit that is fear. So with that in mind, let us think through what Paul is saying here. I've looked at it in this way. Asking the question, what? What is, what is he calling for here? For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The question here then is, what is the gift of God that needs to be fanned into flame? Now initially, we would say, well, isn't it the gift bestowed on Timothy at his ordination when Paul and others laid hands on him. It's recorded for us in chapter one 
uh, or sorry, chapter four of 1 Timothy and verse 14. It says, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is the gift of pastor teacher. This is what I do most Sundays as I'm preaching, as I'm teaching. And this gift was something that had been recognized in Timothy and by virtue of his ordination had been publicly affirmed and sealed by the laying on of hands of the elders. So Timothy was a pastor who teaches and a pastor who teaches um, in his pastoring. The answer to the question is yes, but that's not all. In other words, this is the gift that's being talked about, but this is not the total package of the picture of what needs to be fanned into flame. Is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in Timothy's life the answer? The answer is, in my consideration, yes. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit took up residence in Timothy and began his ministry in his heart. And his ministry included things like this, conviction of sin, insight into the word, guidance in the truth, boldness for the gospel, power for ministry. We could go on. It also included specific gifts, um, and in particular, in Timothy's situation, the gift of pastor-teacher. So we could say it this way. Generally, the gift that's being talked about here is the gift of the Holy Spirit that is in you. Specifically, it is the gift unique to Timothy that is given for ministry. So, so Paul is urging Timothy to take a closer look at the resources God has given him. That's why I brought your attention to this book. We can focus on maybe a gift that God has given us, but we also need to focus on the Holy Spirit who is the one who gave us the gift and gives us multiple gifts that need to be nurtured, need to be fanned into flame. Now, I enjoy fire. I enjoy sitting around a fire. I find it to be a place where I can think and where others can, can come. And There's a tendency to open her up around a fire, isn't there? You share things maybe you wouldn't normally share. There's something about a fire that just kind of draws it out of you. But every once in a while, while the fire is going, even when things are going well, I have to get up and stoke the fire. Got to give it a poke. Got to move things around. Maybe throw some more kindling in there so that the flame on that log will continue to burn. So I guess what I want to emphasize here, this is not saying that Paul had lapsed, or I should say that Timothy had lapsed in any way, in his gift. This is Paul saying, fan into flame this gift. It's simply Paul's way of saying, Timothy, keep the fire of the Holy Spirit and his gifts hot. Keep it hot. As you seek to live out your ministry in this context, keep fanning the flame, keep stoking the fire. Don't neglect the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Cultivate them. Nurture them. Use them. And take a moment to ask yourself a couple of questions. How well do I comprehend the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life? Can I identify ways that he is at work motivating me to grow in my walk to becoming more like Jesus Christ? Secondly, do I have an understanding of any unique gifting that he has given me. And what am I doing with that gift? The 
The Bible has quite a lot to say about how the Holy Spirit gives gifts to every believer. Every believer has at least one, but I would say more than one. And that the purpose of these gifts is the edification of the body of Christ. So if we look at it positively, we can say it this way. If everyone in the body of Christ is using the spiritual gift, the church will be healthy. A well-oiled machine that doesn't beg for help, but is challenged to utilize every spiritual gift effectively. Where God's people are saying, hey, I want to use my gift. Hey, I want to use my gift. Hey, where can I use this gift? Hey, I want to serve here. What can I do? Saying it negatively, if God's children neglect the exercise of their spiritual gift, the church will suffer and be an unhealthy place, disjointed, divided, immature. Paul says, stir up the gift, rekindle the gift. So the question for us is, in what way do we need to rekindle the gift and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Let me just highlight a couple of things here just by means of application. Sometimes we go through various seasons in life where because of that season in life, for example, changing a job or going through sickness or uh, getting married or having a child or maybe moving from one house to another. These are seasons in life where it th- things, things seem, seem to rise up to the top and you get really, really busy with that season in life and it's all understandable and it's all legitimate. But what happens is you say, okay, I'm gonna set aside the exercise of this spiritual gift because of the season and then the season gets over and that gift sits dormant. It needs to be poked, it needs to be prodded, it needs to be fanned into flame. So the question is, when will you return to fan that gift into flame again? Is that a wrestling match between you and God right now? And we all go through seasons of life. We all go through these things. But it's easy to then just kind of settle and to forget about rekindling those gifts. And then there's the subject, I think, of fear. Although we can be looking back over our life and see the the radical nature of God's providence in bringing us to himself, we are fearful of using our gifts. We might fail God. I mean, we might embarrass ourselves. We might become burdened down. if If I start using this gift, then it's like, Everyone's going to be asking me, can I do this, and can I do this, and can I do this? I get it. And we all struggle with that to some degree. Maybe we say, there are plenty of others who are better than me at exercising that gift. Friends, be careful, because in there is the whisper of the enemy who is seeking to undermine the church. Paul tells Timothy, and he's telling us to fan into flame the gift. It is foundational to enduring for the sake of the gospel. That's the what. Now we move to the how. The how. How do we fan into flame the gift? Well, for God has has given us a spirit with a capital S, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. These are the qualities that the Holy Spirit gives to the human spirit. 
of the believer. The Holy Spirit doesn't bear that fruit of fear. No, God has given each believer a spirit of power. A spirit of power so that you will be brave and courageous to stand for Christ. Power is necessary for the preaching of the gospel, especially in the face of immense opposition. Power is needed as the believer in their pursuit of holiness in the face of immense ungodliness. But God has given us the spirit that bears fruit in power. Secondly, he's given us the spirit of love so that you and I will serve others even when it's costly, even when it's unexpected, even when people say, why are you doing that? Look at, look at what place you're putting yourself. That's foolishness. But it's love. And it flows out of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it's also a spirit of, of self-control. So that you will always be reverent, level-headed, not panicked at all. And you say, well, that's just my constitution. Well, it may be your constitution, but the Holy Spirit bears fruit in the life of a believer in such a way that you can exercise self-control when others are just running rampant and wild and confused and panicked. And in that moment, because God is your savior and the Holy Spirit is living in you, you're able to wrap your hands around what you're facing by virtue of focusing on what God says in his word and getting a perspective of God's presence and purpose right now to say, okay, this is difficult. What I'm facing is hard. But if God can save a radical, rebellious kid like me, he can certainly carry me through this ordeal. Now what does he want me to do? He wants me to think about his truth. He wants me to listen to his counsel. He wants to be obedient to what he has to say. He wants me to seek to glorify him with whatever it is before me. We've seen Paul reveal for us three foundations that will fuel us to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Gospel relationships for which we're thankful and bring joy. Gospel reflections, the legacy of God's providence in our lives. Gospel reaffirmation, they're the, the fanning into flame, the Holy Spirit and his gifts in our lives. Paul has a lot more to say to Timothy, but how he begins his last will and testament should cause us to reflect ourselves. So this morning, as we bring our thoughts to a close, there's really two things I, I wanna say about this just to kind of push it a little bit further and just to cause you to think. Friends, there is a need for personal cultivation. There's a need for us to look personally, first of all, at our own discipleship. Paul with Timothy took time to grow him and to nurture him. Even after his mom and his grandmother invested in him, he was still not done growing. And so there is this discipleship, we can say, is necessary for us. There's this discovering of gifts. There's this development of character that God is calling us to. 
And then there's this church cultivation. What are we doing as Gateway Bible Church to cultivate Timothys in our midst? Are we helping families cultivate their little Timothys? Are we helping those who might want to say more specifically and purposefully believe that God is calling them to full-time Christian ministry, calling them to be pastors or missionaries? Are we prepared for that? Are we looking at ways where we can nurture that? And right, flowing right out of our mission statement, there's three things we can say about. There's this idea of knowing. Are we investing in people, teaching them what the Bible says and kind of a theological perspective? That's the whole idea of knowing. And then there's this character training where you are applying what you know in the context of life and seeing from being in the context of life how you respond. Much of what we do in the context of counseling, much of what we do in the context of discipleship is to ask questions of, okay, when you fell in that sin, what were you thinking? What did you know about God? What did you forget about God? Why did you fall into sin? Look at it, analyze it, so that the next time you can grow in your character, you can grow in your application of God's truth to your specific situation. And then ultimately proclaiming. Hands-on training, hands-on ministry. Where not only are we saying, okay, this is, this is what it's all about, here's how you do it, but this is saying, okay, now let's actually go do it. Now friends, one of the beautiful things about our church, I just I wanna commend you for um, some things that we do in our church. Um, we, we have quite a, quite a ratio of children to adults. That's a good thing. I love having the kids around, okay? I know sometimes they bump on your leg and they step on your toes and that kind of stuff, but you know what? It's great to have kids because they are the future, and we need to invest in that future. And as a church, you have done a fantastic job of saying, you know what, I wanna be a part of that. And I would commend Albert, he's not here, but just creating a scenario where, where people have been able to say, we're taking a certain, you know, two weeks at a time over the course of time, and just saying, I'm gonna take that, and I'm gonna do that, and everyone's sharing in the responsibility. Why? Because we have a whole bunch of Timothys up there. And we need to make that a priority. And our time with the kids is not simply, well, we're just going to tell a nice little story. No, we want to invest the word into their hearts. And we're going to do that purposely and carefully together. But even as we think beyond that, how are we investing in the young people that are growing up? How are we investing in, in young couples and, and people who want to pursue their life and, and believe that God has given them a gift? What gifts have you hidden in your closet? That God says, you know what? He's been, he's been knocking on your door saying, bring it here. You need to blow on this a little bit. You need to poke at it. You need to stir it up. God gives us those spiritual gifts, not, not, not to be held and stored, but to be used. You might say, well, I, I just feel uncomfortable with it. Well, let's help you get comfortable. And let's have an environment where where it's okay to make a mistake. Now let's just use the example of our, of our worship team. Do you know that we do not pay anyone to lead worship? And we want to use the gifts that God has given us in his church as the means by which we are gonna be led 
in music and song to bring praise to him. Now, not, it's not necessarily a personal conviction, but I think it's a principle that we're trying to live out here, and that is we want God's people to be using their gifts, and it's not gonna be perfect. And guess what? It's okay. We are not putting on a professional production here. We're the church. And we wanna do the best we can with the gifts that we have, encouraging, nurturing, and training people to use those gifts for the glory of God, and in that context, so that the the body of Christ can stand united together and praise him for who he is. And someone makes a mistake, and we're like, okay, what did you learn? How can you grow? How can we develop? And by the way, who are you teaching? Well, I haven't even arrived yet. Okay, we'll take someone who hasn't arrived more than you and help them to grow. See, sometimes we have to think through this. What are we doing as far as investing ourselves in those who are around us to train and to nurture? And this is what I was saying last week when I was reflecting on the fact that I wasn't here for our anniversary. Praise God that this church doesn't depend on one person, that we are a group of followers of Christ gathered together using our gifts to be his church for his glory. That's healthy, friends. Let's rekindle. Let's keep poking. Let's stir one another up to exercise those gifts for his glory. Let us encourage one another to be courageous, to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. Lord, again, We come to you asking for your help. We cannot do this on our own. We can't just be rah-rah cheerleaders to motivate one another to pursue you. But Lord, would would you allow us to see how the gospel fuels each of us so that we can begin thinking about what it means to be courageous in an ungodly context, to endure hardship for the sake of your gospel. Lord, we need your help. Give us wisdom, give us strength. Lord, may we be motivated by your gospel, Lord, to to poke and to stir up and to fan into flame what you put in us. To do it, Lord, for your glory, we ask in your precious holy name, amen.